0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome. To the wagon wheel on Spotify Green Room if you're listening live now. If not, you'll be listening through the Red Inca podcast or on my YouTube channel, or I don't know, maybe you're in my room with me right now. Big thank you again to Bodyline T-shirts. If you like this t-shirt, this is well, this is a very bodyline-ish t-shirt. Athers getting bounced by Alan Donald, I think. Uh, but thank you to them for helping out. If you have any questions and you're in the Spotify Green Room at the moment, line yourself up and go in there Uh, we'll start as always with the patreon questions thank you to everyone who's been supporting us on patreon there's quite a few things going on with the podcast at the moment obviously the more support we get the more we can look towards bringing on extra podcasts plus of course uh, we're about to finish season three of double century you know the more finances we have the quicker i can get a season four back up uh, which i do actually have an idea for so i'm pretty excited about that Thanks to everyone who's popped into the Spotify Green Room for the live chats. If you follow us on the Spotify Green Room app, you can always do that. But let me now just get into the Patreon questions. Ian Hume says, "I was at Trent Bridge in 2013 and saw Ashton Agar's magnificent 98. That remains the high point of his career, even though he's been a regular in white ball cricket. Has he been mishandled by Australia? Does he have the sco- scope do more than just a bits and pieces cricketer? It's very interesting that one, Ian." Um, uh, these are the questions we get from Patreon, by the way, in case I didn't say that. It, when he got picked, I remember Justin Langer going on and on about what a great athlete Ashton Eager was. No one thought he was a better cricketer than Nathan Lyon at that stage. What they thought it was that he was a tremendous athlete and he had the ability to pretty much do everything on a cricket field, bat, bowl, and field. Um, what hasn't developed is a specific skill that probably allows him to dominate international cricket in any one of those Um I think if Australia had slightly stronger options when it came to all-rounders, I don't even think he would have played much white ball cricket for Australia. I've watched him bowl quite a bit. I think he's there's a lot to like about him, and I think there always has been. I just don't know what particularly he's that good at. I remember he made some runs I think last Shield season and people started saying, oh look, he could bat at number seven for Australia. It's like, well, I mean, National A guy's are not going to bat at number seven for Australia. I, I just I cannot see him ever averaging over 25, um, if he had to bat for no, at number seven for Australia. Um there's always been this sort of constant hope, um, and thought that he is going to transcend his uh well he's gonna he's gonna match his um natural physical gifts with some cricketing gifts. It just hasn't happened so far, Ian. Um, and it'd be really interesting to see if he ever makes that happen. He clearly is. They were right. He clearly is a very gifted athlete. But at the moment, he's just still very much a bits and pieces player, like he was in when he made the, the, the runs in uh, Trent Bridge all those years ago. James Corning says, in T20, do you feel it's better to structure your team around its strengths or its weaknesses? So he's basically saying if you're a batting side, should you pick fewer batters and more bowlers? um and vice versa obviously i I don't think i've ever done any specific research on this but off the top of my head it feels like if you have let's say you have a great top three um and a handy middle order and you know that your bowling is weak it probably makes more sense to have a weak number seven um in that situation to ensure that you have at least eight uh five frontline bowlers than it would be in in to do the opposite and so the other way of going with that would be to go, oh, well, let's just pick all, you know, we've got a 15-man squad or a 25-man squad. Let's just pick, you know, L eight best batters and a couple of them apart part-timers we'll go through. I just don't think that necessarily works as well. So I think generally you have to kind of play off your weaknesses a little bit more, but I haven't done a lot of research on that. Avanish says, um, in view of Virat stepping down from the T10 in captaincy, how does someone judge captains? Wow avenash <laughs> i have uh, i've just finished a, a whole piece on owen morgan with uh, the captaincy questions that have been thrown around him with kolkata uh, owen morgan is really interesting because his success as a captain is probably less to do with on-field tactical genius and it's more to do with thinking about the game and getting teammates to buy into his idea and coaches and even gen- you know high performance managers and everyone to get to buy into his ideas tactically i think he's fine I, He's an above-average tactician, but I don't think he's an absolute genius on the field. And the, the, the games that I talk about in this piece um, are the uh, the two World Cup finals, the T20 World Cup final in 2016 and the no, uh, 19 World Cup final. He obviously receives a CBE um, for winning the World Cup because he won a World Cup for England, and that's what we do. Uh, as a society, someone wins and we give them something nice and shiny. But when you go back through the two games, I'm not sure he didn't have... Equally, if not a better, captaincy game in the first uh, World T20. just happened to be that they were further in front in that game than they ever were against New Zealand. Um, It just happened to be that they lost that game. Um, So we do judge it by wins and losses. I think that going forward, um, we might be able to look at the relative strengths of both sides on paper. Uh, you know, using some sort of you know win predictors by Crickviz and, and uh, I've, CrickInfo info I've got one now and Cricket.com I've got one, you know it, everyone's got some sort of win predictor. Um, having a look at that and having a look at how often your your captains um, outstrip what we what we assume um, their team should be winning. It, it's only something we can do over a long period, not all captains captain over a long period, but it's really tough. and a lot of what captaincy is is kind of unseeable by anyone outside of, sometimes even the captain themselves, um, you know, and so it is really, really tough. It's such a fascinating issue, but we don't have proper metrics and I'm not sure we ever will have (laughs) proper metrics. Deepak says, do you see multi formats players being part of cricket's future? Yes. Um, Because I think if you have, and you you mentioned Ben Stokes in this, uh, it's very hard not to pick Ben Stokes uh, for all three formats. And I think there will, until the, there is an actual separation where, like, rugby league and rugby union, which could happen in, in, in cricket, until there's an actual separation like that, I think that teams will still want to use their best players right across. Uh, you know, if you have Pat Cummins and you're the Australian team, you are going to want to use them. The one thing that will happen in the future, perhaps, when it comes to big, as domestic leagues get really, really powerful. And way more powerful than they are now, especially the IPL. The IPL becomes a six or seven month uh, of the year league, um, you know, a proper sports league, not a pop up league like it is now. Then that that might have a big effect. But until then, I think international teams will certainly do that. Uh, oh, Steve Pack Martin says over the last couple of years there have been a couple of ambidextrous spinners. Uh, he mentions Caminda Mendes. Um, uh, should the bowler have to tell the umpire which arm they're bowling with? I believe. Yeah, well, they do, um, but the batter doesn't have to do that for a switch hit. No, but the batter doesn't actually say I'm a right-handed batter either. Uh, so we don't. That's not part of cricket for whatever reason. Um, it seems to me that it's not that difficult to bowl left-arm finger spin as a natural right-hander. So the incentives are there. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I suppose when you say it's not that diff- difficult, Martin, you're right. But if, you know, uh, someone like Mendes, if, if he's bowling to domestic players in in Sri Lanka i can see how at times he'll get away with it you know that's a lot different than you know suddenly doing that at the higher level whether you have the ability to bowl left arm finger spin and right arm off spin at a level that is as good enough quality that it's worth it if you go back there was an ipl game recently and in the matchup i can't remember who the batter was but in the matchup they thought deepak huda would be a good matchup for uh whoever the left hander was and Deepak Huda is an off-spinner in name. He doesn't really spin the ball that much. He's not a specialist. And just because it was a good matchup, it didn't particularly end up working well on the field. And I think that is where the ambidextrous spinners will come un, undone. It's not that they can't spin the ball away, but the ability to re- repeatedly land the ball exactly when they need it to go. I can't remember with Mendes. I, I remember I seeing some of his first international games. I might have been in Sri Lanka when he played England. And thinking to myself that one of his in one of his um skills, so I can't remember which one it was, left arm figure spin or off spin, I remember thinking to myself, I don't know that this is uh, like international quality spin. And that's gonna be, I think, more important to him going further forward. But I think we will see other players try it. I definitely see I think we'll see other players try it. The same that we've already started to see guys like Rian Parag and um Joe Root and uh Liam Livingston bowl off spin, leg spin. So I, I certainly think if you have that ability, you'll try and do it. Rajesh, uh, Rajashi says, many talented Pakistani fastballs have disappeared over time. Can we have a timeline or some sort of summary discussion for those missing uh, Pakistani fastballs over the last 20 years? Um, I mean, maybe this is the, the, the time or place for it. Look, I think that there's, there's been a mismanagement of talent in Pakistan cricket for, well, forever. I suppose is the best way of putting it. But certainly over the last 30 or 40 years, as other teams have become a lot more professional, um, I, I think other teams have probably done it as well. But I think what Pakistan do is they have this kind of real, they really fetishize like young, exciting prospects. And when those young, excited prospects do really well at 19, 20, 21, 22, they're really excited. And then when they get worked out a little bit and players Work them out and their averages flatten a little bit, Pakistan seems to just go, okay, well, let's find the next person. And it's a terrible way of doing things because realistically, if you have someone who's talented as a fast bowler at 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, whatever that age is, even if they have a couple of poor years, the lessons that they could learn between 23 and 27 is immense. And James Anderson is a very good example of that. But I think we've seen a lot of players like this come through. If you look at someone like Peter Siddle, who was never really that exciting, but maybe very briefly when he first started, got people excited um, in Australia. He um, he ended up being a really good role-playing bowler. And that is because Australia stuck with him and they let him develop and they understood that his numbers always weren't going to be uh, amazing. Um, and he ended up becoming a really good first-change bowler for Australia, where up until that point, Australia had probably struggled at times to find Genuine first-change bowlers. So I think that's where Pakistan goes wrong. Um, but I'm not going to give you the full list because there's a lot of them. <laughs> uh, Sandeep says, has the helmet made a different... In ba- has, has the helmet made batter's techniques worse? Has it made batter's techniques worse? It has made the way we play the short ball completely change. But the game has changed as well in that there are more short balls. We set better fields for them now. Um Bowlers are you know, are more likely to bowl them without the fear of being abused by the media. If you go back to the early coverage of the West Indies, for instance, that is, is slightly different. Uh, when you talk about batters like Gavaskar and Viv Richards never wearing a helmet with a superior technique, they had techniques that suited their period. Their techniques wouldn't necessarily suit today's cricket um you know the same way that bradman's technique and wg grace's technique wouldn't suit today's cricket Viv richards would bat slightly differently if he played today um the same as gavaska and don't forget if richards and gavaska came through now they would have helmets i think what it allowed for for a little while was players really camping out on the front foot and then bowlers got very good and very fast and started bowling a lot more short ball so that changed uh, quite a lot after that Will Cooling says we you scrap one-day cricket to ease the scheduling issues. I, uh, I think I first wrote that piece, um, Will, about ten years ago. Um, look, it's always been my least favourite of the formats. While we've had three formats, even when we didn't have three formats, I suppose it was my, <laughs> my least favourite. Um, I love the World Cup. I think the rest of one-day cricket should be domestic A cricket and friendlies. Um, and I, th- I don't think we need a lot. Of, I don't think we need a lot of bilateral um, white-ball cricket outside of qualifications for. Um, tournaments really but uh, people love it um, TV companies love it because you get 100 ads so no one's going to listen to me Kumar says in light of betting being legalized slowly surely uh, in sporting leagues especially in the US do you think cricket would join the bandwagon too well cricket's already involved with gambling um, in Australia and England um, and some of the other countries I think as well um, it's just been obviously in places like Asia Uh, Where it is, where weirdly it seems like there is even more betting on cricket than anywhere else. And yet, you know, I've always said I don't think making betting illegal works because people are still going to bet on everything. Um, uh, So, um, but no, cricket is involved. So the uh, ICC. Um, cricket Australia, ECB, when they're betting ir- irregularities, they can get information from the betting companies, the legal betting companies. Uh, it's not a perfect system. I don't think it's an ideal system. I think it could be run better. Um, uh, cricket Australia have an official betting partner. I don't think any other cricket team does unless I'm missing one. Um, that brings problems, though, as well, I think. Um, but, yeah, uh, certainly. it's I found the US stuff really interesting, Kumar, because as someone who grew up and they never mentioned betting at all, even though everyone knew people were betting on American sports, to go from that to just everyone going all in on it. gonna be a, there's gonna be a pushback to that eventually um, in the way that you see sometimes in Australia where people say why should my child have to watch a sporting event and just have seven ads about betting um, coming up over and over again. So the whole thing's really really interesting, but we're never going to stop people betting. I think betting should definitely be legalized um, because then we can actually see what the hell is going on with that industry if nothing else. Um, but it is uh, yeah, it's a really interesting one um, going forward. Ramnath Ravi says, are there statistical parameters? What's he asking here? Uh, to find if there's a better finisher than, uh, in, in different players. Look, finishes are really interesting. If, uh, he mentions here Dhoni and Bevan. Uh, if you look at Dhoni and Bevan, they basically do a very similar thing, which is they try and score behind the recommended run chase, but take the game as deep as possible in order to win it. They also lost a lot of games doing that. Um, you know, it doesn't always work and it puts a lot of pressure on a lot of guys at the other end who have to score quicker. Um, we don't have great numbers for it. There aren't, aren't, aren't actually as many successful chases where someone has scored over 20 um, in T20 cricket or, or over, what, 40 in one-day cricket, as you would, you would think. I remember looking at this a few years ago and the numbers just qu- aren't quite there. Um, so I don't think we have anything great. I think we know that there are two different kinds of chasers. There's maybe the Kyron Pollard style of chaser. Uh, who tries to keep the team at or above the, re- uh, the, the required chase. And there's the, the MS Dhoni um, chaser who tries to take the game as deep as possible because anything can happen at the end. Um, when I looked it up for T20 cricket, the players who had the bet most chases were quite often openers, which we never talk about as, as being finishers or chases. Um, and uh, I remember uh, the two names that stood out to me were Klinger and Chris Gale who'd just been there for an astronomical amount of um, wins. So uh, very interesting. Uh, Ian says, how different would T20 be with a red ball? That one's going to make me think for a while. Um, well, the ball wouldn't go soft, so people you'd probably have slips in for longer. Um, swing bowlers would be – you'd have a lot more swing bowls. They'd be paid a lot more money. Um it's really interesting. I think those that and the fact the ball would stay harder at the end would actually help you for hitting. Um, but if the ball kept swinging, that would be really weird. Um, probably wouldn't help spinners as much, would be my guess. I'm trying to think of how it would help spinners. Uh, but really interesting there. Ashraf Ahmed says, Can you name a couple of players who may not be widely known today, but you're interested to see further during the T20 World Cup or even the remaining games of the IPL? Uh uh, yeah, off the top of my head, uh, who do I want to see? I always forget this guy's name, but there's a great uh, player from um, Papua New Guinea. Oh, sorry, not Papua New Guinea, Oman, uh, who balls knuckleballs in the middle. I really like him, and I always forget his name. Uh, uh, I really want to see Charles Amini from Papua New Guinea. Uh, leg Spinner can bat as well. I really want to see Papua New Guinea field, um, I think. Um uh, the the mystery spinner from Sri Lanka, whose name I've also forgotten. Uh, so yeah, I think there's a few, there's a few players out there that I am a little bit interested. In. A lot of the squads have, uh, are, are quite interesting. Uh, sorry, are quite normal, like quite what you would expect. Um, really interested to see sort of how Shamsi goes in a major tournament um, uh, for South Africa as well. I know he's not particularly. Uh, unknown, but I really like to see that. Uh, in the IPL, I really want to see if Ayak and Venki Ayak can keep smacking the ball everywhere um, at the moment. Um, Harshal Patel, I'm really interested in, um, who's obviously um, started to do quite well. Interesting to see if Mumbai starts struggling, if Marco Janssen um, is someone that they turn back to. I'd like to see more of him. Um, so, yeah, there's a few, uh, few different players there. Christopher says, do you think there's potential for the next generation of English cricketers that they could not be competitive in 50 over cricket if... uh, 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 Sorry, I've read that wrong every Next generation, they could play no competitive 50 over cricket if they're only going to get in the ODR. So, uh, yes. I, I can see what you're saying, but I think the only re- I think that there's so much Lions cricket and England usually play so many, um, one day is that I think they should be over uh, able to overcome that. But I do want to know what you mean that the, the system doesn't really allow for that. Gopinath says the episode on the Rhine, um, uh, talking about the Red inker. I assume maybe think about changing techniques over career and success rates. Um, what are the odds for a change in a technique to be successful? <laughs> I think players change techniques all the time, and we don't notice it, and we're starting to notice it more. And I think what we are realizing now is how often players change their techniques. And I think that what can somehow, what can sometimes happen is that we focus on big dramatic changes, but you know, if you're a batter and you're batting on leg stump and you change your guard to off stump, you might bat the exact same way, but from a different position. You're a bowler who starts to come to you know a foot wider um, again it may not be massively noticeable as just you know bowling a new ball or bowling like with the hand behind your back so i think that cricketers are in more of a constant evolution than we understood before or somehow the the matching with the technology and modern cricket means cricketers are evolving more but i don't it's very hard to tell you what the chance of success rate is but what I say to most cricketers is that you kind of need to know what you're best at and you need to be in a constant evolution to catch up with what the game is. So you know, don't want to go away from your strengths, but you also want to understand that if the game has fun, you know, if if your best ball is a knuckleball and suddenly there's a way to pick knuckleballs and smack them out the park all the time, there's no point sticking with a knuckleball, right? You, you have to change. And I think that... Uh, players are m- very adaptable at the moment. And my guess is they probably always have been. We just haven't noticed it as much. Because don't forget, for most of cricket, we've been 80 meters away. And even when we had cameras, we were at a distance. And suddenly, we could see everything. And I think that is probably why um, things are, uh, players are changing more. Anyway, thank you, everyone, for the Patreon questions. If you want to support us on Patreon, you can. And then you can ask questions. And But I've got a bunch of people here who want to ask some on the green room. BJ. Hi, Jared. Beautiful. What's your question?
2: Uh, I want to ask you about Dhoni, but not in the traditional mainstream kind of way. And the reason I'm talking about Dhoni is you once read an article, I think it was 2015-16, where you said Dhoni's biggest advantage in, in his sides he leads is that he's a finisher in those sides and he's a batsman in those sides, right? Um, and that was during mm-hmm. his pop. But I'm interested in Dhoni's longevity as a captain. I can't think of a modern day post-2000-era captain who has built as many teams as he has over 13 years in the IPL and won with so many different templates in T20 or maintain consistency. He's, he now bats 1 to 11 and has seven bowlers, but he's managed teams with an average of like 30. He's got youngsters and he prioritizes fielding in the early days. He opened with Dwayne Smith and Baz and now he's opening with Ritter Ruff. So he's done all these bunch of things, right? And he always seems one step away from blowing up like almost like KKR and Owen and a team, just one, one move away from it collapsing. What is? What are the mistakes that is not making that allows him to succeed in your eyes? And what is with this Ferguson, like building new teams from scratch, burning the old one to the ground and then starting with a completely new template um, that doesn't have his fingerprints on it and then continuing to like maintain success? I find that fascinating.
1: I think the first thing is that he took T20 cricket seriously when no one was. Certainly no one of his intellect and ability was, uh, which allowed him, uh, and you can put the West Indian players in this as well, uh, especially the Trinidad boys and maybe the Jamaicans to a lesser extent as well. They were thinking about this game in a way that Joe Root never has. Right now that's not to say Joe Root is a better captain than MS Donnie, would ever had this success, but MS Donnie has been thinking about this and planning and doing everything from basically from the beginning. I think that that is a huge advantage um, in a way that other players didn't have. I think he obviously uh, very early on, he understood matchups and role definition. Now, he never goes overboard on the matchups but he always plays the matchup so he puts every situation in a game into his advantage where he can role definition is the one you know i've got obviously had a few friends who played for chennai over the years and they always say that like you get to chennai and the ten, and you know ms donian stephen fleming and whoever else is involved sort of comes up to you and says this is why you've been hired this is what we need from you uh we don't expect you to uh, average 40 with a strike rate of 160 what we want from you is you're going to bat, we, we might need you to bat in three games on this kind of pitch in this kind of situation. And they do that with most of their overseas players. And he does a similar thing with these local players. And I think that by doing that, he has the ability to probably get the most out of limited players. And then the other thing that he does is uh, uh, him and Fleming certainly trust... Uh, uh, they certainly trust older players, I think is fair. And so what they do is they they realize that if they have an older player that they trust, that they will they will build a role into the team for that player so that they know that that player's already done that role seven or eight times, whereas a lot of other teams try and bring in a new player who maybe hasn't done that role before to do it. And then the other side is that because he is MS Tony, and because he's now had so much success and he seems to understand the way that... uh certain players work he has the ability to go up to averagely talented players and say to them this is what you can do for this particular team and this will give you a career and they buy in and to be fair once he did it once or twice um it makes sense so i think there's a lot of that i think that probably the chennai backroom staff probably deserve more credit as well um emma stoney probably you know hogs up all the air Um, but you know it if they hadn't have built the team around the way that he needed, it still would have all fallen apart. Um, and I think that he, I, I really think that he understands T20 on a level that very few other players in the game probably do. Um, and f- some of them just don't have the time to do. So that would be my guess with him. Um, I, hope, I hope that uh, that was what you were looking for there. So thanks for that question. Corsa which I probably got wrong again, but let's see if that's right. Are you there? Kalsa? Kalsa, Yep, Kalsa. How can I help you, Kalsa?
0: Okay. My question, I was watching uh, Kilnikati, Samoan Cricket uh, last day on YouTube. So, can you talk a bit uh, in a more far, in a detailed way? And uh, I want to ask that if Japan and uh, USA comes with uh, the, you know, comes to cricket. They will come with their culture too. So what do you think, uh, what will the scenario? The uh, What I have seen is about uh, the USA uh, sports culture that is quite different to you know the cricket. So they might come with different ways. So what will be the uh, differences and what we can explain? Okay. That's, that's my question.
1: Yeah, I mean, we don't know exactly how USA cricket will develop. Um, I don't think USA football has completely developed um, in a different way than the than the rest of the sport, as far as I'm aware, but I'm not an expert in that. Um, uh, one thing we did notice is that in the USA, their women's team has got a lot better than their men's team very fast, um, which I would expect probably will be the case as well in women's cricket. Japan's really interesting because if Japan gets into cricket... Uh, I can see how they could get obsessed by cricket. I can see how it's a sport. Uh, it seems to be, you know, uh, other than the fact that they already love baseball cricket almost seems like a more Japanese sport than it does for some of the countries that already play it. Um, so it'd be fascinating if even a, even a region of Japan got obsessed with cricket, what that would do. That's what I'm looking for. I'd like to be the uh, general manager of Japanese cricket or would like to run the Japanese Premier League. If anyone's out there and, and needs me for either of those positions, I'm available. Uh, who we got next? Jimmy. Hi, Jared. Uh, how are you going? What's your question?
0: So I wanted to ask that I uh, are... Classical finger spinners becoming an endangered species in T twenty cricket or even wonder cricket somewhere. What's your take on that? I mean classical off- uh, off- didn't? not like Chandra, I I don't put Ravichandran Ashwin as classical off spinners. Guys like Nathan Lyon, Moe Ali, Jadeja. I mean, yeah.
1: I mean moen and Allen and Ravi Jadeja are pretty good one-day players, and Nathan Lyon's got a pretty good record, to be fair, domestically in T twenty cricket. I think there's a limit to what they can do. Look, I think what happened was uh, we, up until 2014, people were bowling doosers illegally more often than not, and we had one kind of off spin. And then we basically pulled the plug on that. And because of that, there's been a regression in finger spin. I don't think that's going to be the case forever. Um, we've also become very matchup obsessed in white ball cricket, and I think that's caused a problem with with, with off spinners as well. Um, but I don't think that will always last. Uh, you know, it, uh, the amount of time, it's very hard. If, if you're good enough to make, be an international off spinner, chances are you're pretty good against right handers. And if you're good enough to be an international left arm finger spinner, chances are that you're pretty good against uh, left handers. Uh, and so sometimes we just look at the matchup and, you know, I, I, so I think that going forward that will happen less. But um, uh, thanks, Jimmy. Basker has come back. Hey, Jared. Hey,
2: what's your question? Yeah, so this is the question regarding DRS. So recently, uh, what we saw in the US Open in tennis, all the calls were actually done by Hawkeye and there were no umpires uh, uh, Mm. judging it. And in cricket also, no balls are now already judged by uh, the wide third umpire. So my question is that if the objective of DRS is to remove all the howlers, Why don't they just review every decision of out which is given by the umpire? So the batting team has no reviews and the bowling team may have two or three reviews in that way. So that way, it will remove all the howlers. And if not, then what is your best uh, thinking on how the DRS should be managed in order
1: to remove howlers? It would take too long. There's too many appeals in cricket and we would be stopping the game all the time. We have improved. I would say we have improved umpiring 10, 12% already from where it was pre all this technology to where it is now. And I don't just mean DRS. I mean, umpires are better now because they understand what balls are hitting the stumps and uh, they understand things that they just didn't understand before. So I think umpiring has massively improved already. uh, And I don't think anyone is at the stage where they want the game to be slowed down to that amount. I don't know if you remember, um, uh, they tried something in the ICL um, tournament where, the umpire would look at the review after every ball and not a review, but like a replay every ball. And if he saw something that he thought the umpire had missed or made a mistake with, they could do it. I just, I don't know if that's going to work. Um, it, it, when the spinners were bowling, it seemed like every second ball, the spinner would come, come into the deliver and the umpire would stop him. Um, it's slowing down an already slow sport, And we, it's, it's not like the technology is 100%. Anyway, the technology can't be 100%. So, a perfect example of this is uh, we don't always get exactly where the ball has hit the pad on the on the LBWs. So that is, you know, the, the the technicians try as hard as they might, but they don't always get it exactly 100% on. And depending on where the ball is hit on the pad can have a big impact on whether the ball is out or not. So we're never going to get 100% of decisions right. I think that there has to be something about the speed of the gameplay that is factored into this. Although I did note in the 100, they seem to review things at four times the speed that international cricket does. Um, I think we should be in a position where all third umpires uh, uh, do it from a studio somewhere and that they are looking at every ball and they are... um, uh, professionals at being third umpires I think there's a lot of changes we can make but I don't think we need the, all, all decisions to be made in that way it's completely different from tennis where you can tell where the ball has landed um we there is a predictive element and there are a lot of you know bats and pads and noises and scratches and all those sorts of things happening in cricket um that uh completely different to tennis so no I, I wouldn't copy tennis's uh way of doing things thanks mate all right who have I got next Ollie. Hi. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah, I'm good. What's your question, mate?
0: Um, so, my question is about Ollie Pope.
1: Um, That's because everyone in the UK is called Ollie. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, and last time I checked, he was on about 235 not out of the Oval, and he needs about 40 more runs in this innings to bring his average back over 100 of the Oval. And you recently did a video on Rahane, and I think you mentioned, was it Suriku Yadav? And it was his average inside.
1: I can't uh, Shreya Sire. Yeah, Shreya Sire is average, yeah, yeah. Do you think that's comparable with Ollie Pope? Um, I
0: know, so he, his best knock in test cricket in over a year was in the recent match at the Oval on a dead wicket again. He um, was 81. It just seems like he he's made two double centuries this year at the Oval, 137 I think it was as well at the Oval and he doesn't really seem to do much anywhere else other than South Africa. Um, do you think that's, a, that's an issue for him? Or do you think it's just a coincidence or is it just that the Oval is a better pitch and uh, in test cricket you might get better pitches I think Michael Vaughan mentioned to I I watched him speak for James Fraisy for his debut and um, James Fraisy asked him if he had any tips and he said you might actually find it's easier in test cricket because the pitch tends to have less sort of demons than first class cricket in England so do you think he has an issue or do you think it's just something that's a
1: coincidence that he needs to iron out I don't think it's a coincidence I think that It shows that, I mean, in both cases, Shreya Sire and in his case, it's good to be able to do that at test grounds. And, you know, Shreya Sire has a really good record at Wanchetti and um, uh, Ollie Pope has a very good record um, at the Oval. That's not a bad thing because they're test grounds. It might be worse if you're you're averaging 200 at Scarborough or something like that. Um, That would be maybe more of an issue. So I like the fact that they're making runs at test grounds. I think the problem is that, we're noticing it now, and it probably wasn't noticed earlier. Um, oh, although, you know, hopefully, you know, Nathan Lehman or Mo Babbitt or whoever was uh, in charge of that at the time at least had an eye on it. I think the bigger problem with him is actually probably something else. It's that when you look at uh, when you look at him, I really think he struggles to score against spinners, and I think he. Uh, I saw that in his first class record in England. And that's only going to be worse when you play overseas. And I talked about this on talk Sport and Gareth Batty and Mark Butcher battered me. Um, and since then, um, occasionally I see them and I smile and we talk about it. <laughs> um, and I think that's a bigger issue where I think the Ollie Pope and the Shreyas I think is interesting is we can't, you really, you can't take the one average number, right? So if you're picking Ollie Pope and he's averaging, what was he averaging when he was picked for England was it 63 or something in first class cricket, Right. If, if he's averaging 63 in first-class cricket, you need to be able to go split that up and go, okay, what is he averaging home in a way? And I, I can tell you a couple of players off the top of my head. Um, I think Jack Leach averages 20 or 21 at Somerset and 32 when he travels. And Alex Hales at one stage had a strike rate of 170 or 180 at Trent Bridge and a strike rate of 135 everywhere else. And it's once you know that, you can make an informed decision, right? You have the ability to do that. And I think what happened with with Pope was it's only recently people have really cottoned on to this. And with Shreya it was just a lucky thing. I don't think before I wrote about it, it was ever mentioned. I, I could be wrong. And again, it was just, a, you know, I stumbled into it and it was someone on, on here on Green Room who asked me the question. And, and when I looked it up, I, I was shocked. And I think that that is the level that we need to get to when we're talking about players because that none of this means that Leach or Hales or Pope or Aya are not talented. To be able to average that much at home is really important. But when you, are high, you know, when you are putting a cricket into your international team, you really don't want them to average 50 at home and 30 away because they're going to be away a lot. And you need to know that going in and you need to know what the strengths and weaknesses are. And I think that is where the bigger problem is. Now... If Oli Pope continues to only make runs at the Oval, then that is an issue. My guess is that is not the case. And I would say that the far bigger problem for him is not being away from the Oval. It's going to be facing international quality spinners regularly and how he scores off them and how he rotates the strike Um, because he's brilliant at doing that um, against everyone else, uh, against all the seamers. So... I think that's where the issue with Oli Pope is going to be, but um, it's, a, it's a really, it's a really interesting one, and, and how it plays forward. But it's good that I, actually, when I heard the Oli Pope numbers, I was like, it's actually just good we're talking about it, because you know, five even five years ago, that wouldn't have been wouldn't have been a conversation. But now we, it's so easy to get the stats um, and to have a look at these things, and uh, you know, people have access to that. I, I think it, I think it's better for Oli Pope. Like it might, there might be a gnawing thing in the back of his head of like, am I good or am I just good at the oval, which isn't, isn't going to be true anyway. Um, but it's good for him to be like, okay, great. Now I know, now I know what to do. Like, let's say this was a perfect world, right? A perfect cricket world. If I'm Molly Pope now, I'd be like, all right, I'm going to change my County. I'm going to go to, um, where would, well, Somerset might be a good one. um, um, uh, you know I, we'll I have these some you, you want division 1 maybe another test venue perhaps but you go to another place to test yourself in new conditions but somewhere that maybe spins a bit more as well would be great for him um but that's not quite the world we live in and uh, he ain't leaving sorry so he will continue to make runs at the oval and hopefully for him he learns how to make them everywhere else but thank you very much for that Ollie Lee no relationship that I'm aware of all right who we got next Kunal
0: so my question is on the, the spinners in indian team right for the t20 world cup we have varun Chakroti and ashwin who have not really played any international cricket of late although they have been playing so do you think you, which is the best spinning uh,
1: lineup among the teams you have based on and on the t20i performance and what you think will make a difference well i mean i, I think you're missing some spinners aren't you is um uh, they've got axar patel and they've got um Jadeja, don't they? Am I, or am I getting lost? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I still think. Oh, they got Rahul Chahar as well. They got five. I forgot. My God, they got a lot of spinners. Um, I think pound for pound. India still has a brilliant um, spinning lineup. I don't think Ashwin is going to play every game. I don't think Chakravarti will play every game, but they might be brought in for specific matchups, or they might also be brought in with someone like Chakravarti. You can almost bring him in just for the uh, knockout games um, and just say, Hey, good luck, everyone. You've never faced him before. Um, see how you go. Um, so that gives them good options there. Um, I mean, obviously, Afghanistan has, um, you know, just incredible uh, T20 bowling depth, but. Um, there are many issues around them and whether they even make it to the World Cup and which players play in the World Cup and all these sorts of things. But, you know, at a full-strength Pakistan, uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan spin, the, their top five is Rashid Khan, Mujib, um, uh, Muhammad Nabi, uh, Waka Salim Keel and K S Ahmed. That's a good top five. Um, you know, you're not finding too many better options than that around the world. Um, so I would think that those are, you know, in raw talent, probably the two best, um, spin bowling lineups in the world, uh, because they cover, they cover a few different things, you know, that, you know, mystery wrist spin, uh, spinning the ball both ways, um, uh, uh, unknown quantity, you know, all those different things that they have, like, like if, If Afghanistan threw Waka Salim Keel into the World Cup, my guess is he'd probably take quite a few wickets. For those who don't know, he bowls left-arm wrist spin. He hasn't really played that much cricket. But they've got Zahi Khan as well, the other left-arm wrist spinner as well. Um, Oh, my God, they've got a lot of spin. But, um, you know, I think they have the ability to sort of do that. and um, and, And the same with India. So off the top of my head... Those are the two spinning attacks that I would be most interested in seeing. Um, And uh, I can't think of any other team that probably compares to India or Afghanistan for number of spinners, variety of spinners, and quality of spinners. Thanks, Kunal. All right, here we go next. Jan Preet. Hi, yes. Uh, Jared, thank you for putting me on. No worries. What's your question? Yeah, I have a question about
2: liquid manure. I was reading up an article that you wrote in 2020 and also watching that video about uh, most improved players or I think it was about Ashan Sharma and you mentioned how liquid manure changed cricket and outside of your articles and the couple of references I could find in them there's literally no other information anywhere I could find on the internet so I was just hoping you could you know uh, explain that bit about cricket a little more as to
1: what pitches it's really interesting or or after and how it changed uh, the cricket scenario? Yeah, well, think about this. I, I am—I don't know if you're a gardener at all, but if you want stuff to grow, you obviously need some kind of fertilizer. And cricket pitches have to grow quite regularly, um, obviously, during the season. And so they had to use fertilizer. Now, before they had liquid fertilizer, they were literally putting little chunks of cow shit on the pitch or whatever shit they used i suppose uh, whatever kind of fertilizer they used and so that meant that there was pebbles on the pitch there was literally chunks on the pitch so what you did at that stage is you wanted to hit the pitch and it meant that you couldn't trust the bounce on the pitch it meant that at any stage you were going to get a ball that kept a little bit low or a ball that bounced a little bit too high there wasn't good batting surfaces so if you look until 1895 um there is certainly um uh batters around the world just didn't make a lot of runs um they they you know look at wg grace's average um compared to modern day players you'd be like why are people even talking about this guy right like he's not that spectacular um as a test average even as a first class average so what begins to happen then is is it called muckrakers i think that or no, is that uh, muck spreaders or something? A machine is invented that basically liquefies fertilizer for farmers. And that starts to get used more and more. And by... By the mid-1890s, I think um, uh, the Melbourne Cricket Club Library found me an article where they were talking about using it in Tasmania for cricket matches. So that was in 1894, 1895. So we would assume by that stage, if it's gone all the way from Lourdes to Tasmania, that pretty much anywhere around the world had the ability, if they had a farming um, uh, structure, which is kind of everywhere, um, that they had these machines out there. And what that did was basically take the pebbles off the pitch. That means that you could play um, safely, knowing that the ball was going to come to you and you could play across the line. No one played across the line before because they couldn't trust the ball. So that is a huge change in the game. And that is the last time that the ball ever dominated the bat um, in, in test cricket really was well, in, in first class cricket, probably more so, uh, was in that period. Um, and that's because the pitches changed. So what you see next is, and it's almost immediate, how quick these things change. We then have um, um, uh, Hobbs, come through, who makes 197 first-class 100s, who averages over 50 in first-class cricket. Uh, well, sorry, he makes 197 first-class 100s or 199 first-class 100s, depending on uh, which games you want to count. But he made a lot of first-class 100s. Uh, straight away, he becomes the first run machine um, that we've ever had, which is sort of a name that I've given them. So players who, who you know, uh, that sort of Bradman, Hammond, Barrington, um, you know, Steve Smith, um, Sessions and Doolka type player. Uh George Hedley's another one, I suppose. Uh, before that, we didn't really have players like that. We didn't have players who averaged over 50 um, and, um, before that. So Hobbs becomes that. And then Trumper comes along. And Trumper is the first guy who starts hitting the ball from anywhere he wants to wherever he wants to hit it. So in a, in a similar way that we saw a lot of players in the 90s play more on the front foot because of helmets, Trumper starts going, wow, this ball's outside off stump, but I'm going to hit this to square leg. That didn't exist before. And players hit the ball based on where it was bowled. And quite often they wouldn't even drag the ball to leg because it was seen as an incorrect shot. And the reason it was seen as an incorrect shot wasn't just because of the English class system not liking leg side heaves. It was because people kept going out to them all the time because the ball would hit a chunk of cow shit on the pitch and not and go. The, the difference in flatness was huge. So you could play the ball now based on, on your skills, not on the pitch itself. So that is why liquid manure massively changed the game I have done a little bit of research on it. I think one day probably someone will do a, a proper deep dive into it. Um I'm sure there's a lot of great old articles about it. But yeah, I I I I did as much as I could on it. Um and my expertise is not um is not a uh, library research and old newspaper research, but I found what I could and I talked to people I could and um there's absolutely no doubt that you can see that when those machines become popular, um people start batting better. Um and I'm not saying that there aren't other parts of that, but we, that was at the same point that swing bowling was getting better and spin bowling was getting better. So you would actually think that bowlers would have continued to dominate. Instead, the exact opposite happened. And for from 1900 to really the 19, next 50 years, batters just got better and better and better and better until you know we worked better methods out to um, dismiss them. So uh, does, that, does that help, Gepner? Yes, it, it certainly does.
2: Thank you so much. I didn't have any of that context. So thank you. Thank you for explaining.
1: No problems. Cheers. Thank you. All right. Who have I got next? Kyle. Kyle, you there? Hi, Jed. How you doing, mate?
0: I was probably going to ask this question already, but after your video about England and New Zealand cancelling their bilateral series, it seems even more relevant. I had a long conversation a couple of days ago with a friend from Bangladesh who's very interested in test cricket and was really intrigued by me you know, unoriginally parroting your ideas that Test Cricket is leaving money on the table by not selling its rights as a bundle. Uh, could you go a bit into more detail about like how that process could actually work? Would television rights be sold by nation, So each like each nation has a television uh, or a channel that would air it or to a global conglomerate. How the ICC would wrest control from the boards and distribute the money. And finally, can you answer this really interesting question to me Which is, if you had a chance, how would you pitch the buying rights to Test
1: Cricket to, say, Jeff Bezos? (laughs) So, the first thing is that because every single series is sold individually, and a lot of them are sold towards the last minute, it's not the home rights that we're losing all the money on, it's the away rights. Um, And so you get in a situation where, and this happens all the time, if, if you're like me and you follow this or you work in this industry, especially like, you know, sometimes I work with radio stations, you realize how often a week before a major series, no one knows who's going to broadcast it, right? And, uh, you know, you, you try and turn on the TV um, and, and watch some cricket and you're not actually sure who has the rights for this particular series. And that's because they get sold at the last minute. And when they get sold at the last minute, it isn't the TV companies who miss out. It's the... It's the boards who miss out on all the money. And this happens for series involving India. This happens for series involving England. This happens for series involving Australia. Imagine what happens when Bangladesh plays Zimbabwe, right? And so the overall, the, uh, so basically what TV uh, uh, boards do around the world is they just wait. Uh, so, TV, uh, TV um, companies do around the world is they just wait they know that test cricket is, I, I was told by I can't, um, it was the head of star oh, what 10 years ago he said to me jared we can't believe how little money we pay for test cricket we think it's a joke but you know we you know we would never say that sort of publicly because um, we'd have to start paying more but they knew that they were paying massive. they knew they were paying way too much for white ball cricket at the time and nowhere near enough for red ball cricket and this was an indian tv executive telling me this like, and the reason was is for the same reason I always go along about, you know, you have five days of people watching, even if it's 8 million people compared to 14 million for a one day, it's like the one day audience goes away. It disappears. The test match audience keeps coming back. If you're an advertiser, you want that. You don't want the one, the one day thing bad. That's why, um, you know, domestic sport has taken over the world more than international sport. Cause you can play game after game after game and advertisers love that. That's basically what pays for the sport. So based on all of everything I've just said, if you sell everything as an overall package, you can't get ripped off from series to series to series to series. And that's currently what we're doing. So when a series like Bangladesh, um, Zimbabwe happens, it will be wrapped up in this other thing and there will be more money in the overall pool. But there's also more money in the fact that when India plays, uh, let's say India play the West Indies, there's a lot of money to be made from Indian fans all the way around the world, but at the moment, the West Indies Cricket Board can't do all these deals with all these different places to get the cricket into all those um, methods. One deal could do that. You could say to you know a Brazilian TV provider, okay, here you go. You want you want um, you want the Ashes, or you want India Pakistan at the next World Cup, whatever you want. I don't know, uh, you know, whatever they're looking for. In order to get that, you have to buy this and you have to give the money up in front, which means everyone's going to know how much money they're going to get. There's a lot more. When you you do individual deals, you get screwed. It's the same as collective bargaining in anything. It always gets you more money, right? So I suppose that's the the basis for this. The the secondary part of this is that I don't know how many cricket fans there are in Brazil, but my guess is that there's a couple of hundred thousand people in Brazil that like cricket, minimum, and that there's quite a few in Argentina and that there's quite a few in Fiji and that there's quite a few in, you know, Malaysia and all these different places around the world, everywhere where Australians, English, South African, Pakistani, Indian, Sri Lankan, Bangladeshis have ever immigrated to, (laughs) there are cricket fans and we are not making any money off any of them right? Most of them can't even buy legal cricket or they can't follow it anymore or they disappear from the game. And we can't build new fans in those places. Someone like you, uh, yourself who's who's come to cricket in a different way, right? So again, I know there's millions of dollars. So if I was going to Jeff Bezos, what I would say is we currently have a sport where we have a guaranteed fan base of somewhere between, um, 20 million hundred million people. And that, The the game takes five days and you get targeted ads and you have a very good idea of where that goes. And at the moment, I would say somewhere between 20 and 40% of cricket fans can't watch every test series. And these are test cricket fans. So you're not only are you not developing new fans in new places, you're also not even keeping with the fans who would want to be able to watch it. For me, it's almost a no-brainer if you were a streaming network to actually try and buy the entire rights to test cricket, make sure everyone gets an absolute ton of money, sell it off to individual TV markets in the major countries and keep the streaming rights for yourself so that a bit like what Willow TV did in America, um, but every single cricket fan in the world could do what NBA TV or MLB TV does and literally go on and they are now watching Bangladesh under-19s play um papua new guinea under 19s because that's what they want to watch today and then tomorrow they want to watch a test match uh, between you know ireland and new zealand and at the moment there's just no option there's so much money being left out someone put a a comment up on my piece going oh this is idealistic and um you're trying to take money away from the major boards i'm like we could make more money for the major boards But we could also guarantee that the players are paid and that the hosting fees are paid um, and that we actually have a system in place. There's no system at the moment. Even the World Test Championship is not really a system. So uh, that's what I would say to Jeff Bezos. Um, I would say that in my my experience of cricket, that there is absolutely a ton of money left on the table uh, when it comes to Test cricket and that there is a... Not only is there a, a a... a group of people that are, um, fans of it that aren't being, um, monetized, there's also going to be more fans of it. As T20 cricket grows, there will be more fans of, of test cricket because eventually people will just pop over to test cricket. So if T20 gets even bigger, my guess is that test cricket will continue to pick up fans. I don't think it will. It, yeah, I think it had a, a cannibalization at, at a point, but I think eventually it will actually start to feed fans back into, um, test cricket. So, um, I can't see any reason why there isn't an absolute fortune to be made in this and we can fix the system at the same time and make it fairer and better and secure test cricket for a long period of time. I should be i should um, be told that... Uh, I should point this out that this was brought up once at the ICC. Not quite my idea, but similar. And the ICC used to own the rights to cricket.tv or ECB did. Someone in cricket owned them. They're up for sale now if you want to buy cricket.tv, by the way. Looked it up the other day. Um, and... Um, and it was last out of the room. They, they didn't, oh, no, why, why would we want to do that? We're happy with the current system. Well, the current system is fucking ass. And if Test cricket was to die, it would be because we have not changed this system. Um, but thank you, Kyle. Thank you for making it sound smarter. <laughs> no worries, cheers, mate. All right, I could probably do, who have I got left? Yeah, I can probably do two more. So i got Artish oh, is there, what's your question?
3: Hi, uh, first of all, is your arm better now? That- I
1: mean, I wouldn't say better, um, I can bend it about uh, four or five inches in each direction, uh, which I was not able to do. Um yesterday, it was seeping blood it doesn't seem to be seeping blood um, as we're as we're here today. Um, but yes, uh, I can I can pick my nose, uh, which you, could, you you would be able to see if this was video, um, and I can touch my other ear, all things I couldn't do before. So um, it seems to be getting fixed. I suppose now it just depends on how long it takes to actually um get back up.
3: Yeah, that's good.. Um... Yeah my question is after i heard your uh, red Inker episode about uh, uh, the baseball all-rounder uh, right mm-hmm. and you mentioned how Imran khan was uh, at one point both the best batsman and the best bowler among the top five in both categories and i was thinking how some of it might be like a statistical uh, like illusion because he was not out for uh, so many matches and then i went into the stats and i looked at how Sean Pollock is both a very good batsman and an excellent bowler. And yet he's not talked about as much. So I thought, would he be like the diametrical opposite of someone like Imran Khan? Where the stats maybe do not do him justice. Because nobody ever mentions Sean Pollock is one of the best bowlers or or all around.
1: But yeah, sorry. (laughs) Well, I mean, I looked into the not out ratio of Imran Khan. Um, If you're getting a lot of not outs and you're batting at number six, that's still phenomenal. Like that's not a normal thing to have happen. Um, I know we, we talk about that a lot, but I, I've done a lot of research into this. It's, there's not as many not outs at number six or number seven as people seem to think there are. Um, uh, no, his was his was a consistency of getting double figures, uh, you know, good double figures as well, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80. Um, that's where Imran Khan did his. Uh, it's a, It's a statistical illusion in that he wasn't, if you had to pick your best five batters in the world at that time, I don't think he would have been the fifth name on the sheet. It's not a statistical illusion that he made consistent runs all around the world um, and held up uh, West Indies, uh, West Indies, Pakistan's middle order. Show, uh, show I said show' said Sean Pollock. If that, there's a combination for you. I think Sean Pollock, if you look at his record, he, as a bowler, I think this is right. He got worse and worse over time and that's basically because he was an absolute quick bowler when he started his body fell apart and he found methods of getting good but don't forget if you look at the other bowlers of his eras um there's a lot of guys with his average or even better than his average so as good as he was he wasn't ever the standout bowler although he uh, if if he wasn't injured maybe he could have been as far as batting goes he batted really low down the order I think he's got – I think I found this out recently. His uncle has the highest batting average for batting number four. Sean has the highest batting average batting at number nine. And his dad has the highest at batting average batting number 10. Minimum of, I don't know, 20 innings or 10 innings or something ridiculous, which he really liked that's that stat. It was like his family was taking over the entire global batting order. But if you're batting at nine and Imran Khan's batting at six – the impact that you are putting on the team is massively different. Now, that's not Sean Pollock's fault. They had Lance Kluzner. They had Mark Boucher obviously sliding down the order. They had Brian McMillan. They had Callis. Um, they had like a comedy a number of of all-round talent, and Pollock probably wasn't the main one. And because of that, what, what did he average? I mean, you've just looked it up. Was it 33, 34? 32, yeah. 32.5. 32. So I, I think 32, it would have been really interesting to see if Pollock had played in a team where he had to bat 6, 7, even 8 a little bit, could he have developed in the way that Imran Khan, Ravid Asia, and Dan Vettori did? Or was he a 32 average um, guy who, don't forget that 32 would also quite potentially have some not outs um, uh, involved in it? I would assume just because he was such a good player and he was batting so low down the order sometimes. Um but but yes, I think he I think he probably was underrated um when we look back on it. And I think I wrote a piece. It was a horrible piece now. I wish I'd never written it, but I remember writing a piece about how when he first came on the scene, we I think a lot of us thought this guy is going to take 500 test wickets and a bowling average of 20 and um and be able to bat at number 6 or 7 and probably averaged 35 or 40. And he did because he, it's almost like the Shane Watson thing. He failed his own expectations, but there's no way to go back and have a look at his numbers and not be like, but that's a, you know, in Pollock's case, an absolute all-time great. And I do think he's forgotten a little bit. Um, also he wasn't a particular, you know, there's a bit of that Sachin thing as well, wasn't it? He wasn't a particularly good captain and that sort of, uh, uh what's the best way of putting it? That sort of took the shine off him, I think a little bit, um, but fantastic. He was a good subfielder fielder as well. Um, I think he was a fantastic cricketer, but I don't think like I, you cannot undersell what Imran Khan did. No one has even got, even if it was a statistical illusion, where's all the other guys who've done the statistical illusion, right? <laughs> like no one has, like Ravaged Asia has done great for two, two and a half years in test cricket. Um, and still people are asking for, you know, Ashwin to come in and replace him at times, right? Imran Khan did better than what Jadeja has done over the last couple of years for a decade when he was in his 30s, and when he really, should there should have been signs that he was struggling. Um, And I'm sure he used himself very well as a bowler, because that's what old captains tend to do. Um, And I'm sure that his batting was less dynamic and more... What's the way of putting it? Less dynamic and more accumulative. Do you know what I mean? I don't think he had bit. I don't think everyone went, oh no, Imran's coming out. But at the same time, three hours later, he's probably on 45 not out, and you're like, ah, oh, shit, we can't get rid of this guy. Um, and he did that over and over again. But uh, but great questions. In fact, great questions from everyone again today. Uh, thank you to everyone. Remember, if you want to join these, we do these around midday, one o'clock ish, depending on the day, on Fridays on Spotify Green Room. You can download the Spotify Green Room app and follow me, Jared Kimber. That's my name, Jared. Kimber. These also go up on YouTube. So if you came into the green room late and you want to listen to it later, it'll be up on YouTube and it'll be up on uh, the Red Inca. Huge thanks again to the Patreon subscribers. They're directly responsible for this podcast coming up. So thank you there. I'm trying to think if I have anything I need to vlog. Oh, I did a really good video that I really like today. In fact, it's about the speed distribution of bowlers and how through the data we can see different patterns in different bowlers. Now I've said it out loud, it doesn't sound that cool, but it's actually quite cool to look at this. And uh, I think that you will like it. I've got an Owen Morgan piece coming up on Info, which I'll probably also turn into a video as well. Something on the sunrises coming up with video and a couple of other very cool uh, T20 videos that hopefully we'll get up either during the IPL or um, during the World Cup. We're trying to do videos on YouTube every day for the IPL and the World Cup every day-ish anyway, as much as possible, because these are kind of like, you know, two tournaments that I am getting paid to cover for other people. And also, you know, it's kind of my, um, you know, my wheels, especially the World Cup, you know, for me, that's a really big one. So thank you to everyone who came in the room. I remember you can support us on Patreon. Thanks to Bodyline uh, T-shirts for this Athers almost getting hit in the face one. And thank you to everyone who came in and asked questions. Goodbye.